Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? So iron has been on my list of podcast topics to cover for some time now, because women often reach out to me and say, I'm low in iron. What should I do? But I have a story for you today that just takes the cake and instigated me to go ahead and get this episode on. So someone in my Facebook community Um, recently uh, shared an experience that she had when she went to give blood. It was Lindy. Um, She's been through Feast of Fast and part of the Christian Health Club. And I just love her. And she just knew this would get my goat. So this is what she said. She said, Chelsea, I have a doozy for you. When I recently went to give blood, my iron was low. Before leaving, two phlebotomists came up and handed me a package of Oreos. They told me I should eat more of them because that one little package contained 10% of my daily value. She said, seriously, medical workers who specialize in blood stuff told me to eat Oreos for iron. No wonder our culture is so unhealthy. And with that, I knew it was time to do the iron episode. I mean, I get frustrated when I see people recommend spinach for iron, which we'll talk about today, but Oreos... I mean, these people are obviously not health professionals, but I do have a true health professional here with us today to talk about iron because it's kind of complicated and it's not as simple or straightforward as you think, you know, as your blood test says, oh, you have low iron, you should eat more iron rich foods like Oreos. There are other factors, other markers to consider to get a true understanding about your iron levels. And our guest today is an expert. Um, He is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner. And he's one of those guys that we all look to in our NTP group for advice and good information. He's so knowledgeable. In fact, he teaches health professionals blood chemistry and how to interpret blood labs. So he seriously knows his stuff. He's extremely generous with his knowledge. He's always sharing and helping both clients and practitioners better understand how to address health issues. So when I was thinking about having him on to do this podcast, um, Proverbs 2717 came to mind as iron sharpens iron. So one person sharpens another. He is always sharpening our skills, and now he's here to do it with us today. So welcome, Michael Rutherford, to the Christian Health Club podcast. Thank you. What a, that might be my favorite introduction so far. I've done a lot of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad. I truly, truly mean it. Anytime I see you pop in the grape, I'm like, oh, I always read through everything you say um, and really value the information that you give there. Um, have you ever heard anything as ridiculous as this Oreo story? I mean, probably. You that is, Can you believe that? <laughs> that is up there. That is, <laughs> that is definitely... Pretty, pretty high. You know, it's funny because I have a recent story about, you know, a post that I actually made and someone that commented on it that I thought was ridiculous. But this one is, oh, man. (laughs) I know, right? Well, feel free to use it as... Uh huh. Feel free to use that as a ridiculous story if you need to. Um, well, before we get started, tell us about your background and how you got into the holistic health space. Yeah. So, you know, I I definitely grew up as one of those people just kind of generally interested in wellness or health. I grew up as an athlete from the time I was in first grade. I started playing soccer. By the time I was in middle school, I was playing competitively. And I was also started wrestling in middle school. With wrestling came, you know, in middle school wasn't, you know, such a big thing with weight. But as I got into high school, I had to make a choice between wrestling and soccer. I was pretty small going into high school. So I decided wrestling because it was weight class. I didn't want to be five foot and a hundred pounds going against 175 pound, six foot seniors in soccer. Uh, so, so wrestling <laughs> sounded like a better choice. 
And with that came more focus on weight. Uh, and I had the conversation recently with my girlfriend actually about how it's very different. You know, it was, we very much went down a lot of horrible paths of just anything to keep our weight down and to make weight. Um, but it was very, most of us didn't come out with eating disorders because it was a very different mindset than say, a, you know, a high school girl who's trying to lose weight because of body image. Ours was always about, there was a very specific goal and it had nothing to do with how we looked. It was about getting to a point where we could, you know, perform, you know, with our best chance. Um, but with that, you know, I, I definitely was paying attention and I also was doing weightlifting as well. And so there was always a focus on how can I support my body in some way? And that just created, you know, this mindset of trying to be quote unquote healthy based off of, especially back in that point, that was, you know, early 2000s, um, you know, pretty, pretty basic general, uh, you know, government based food pyramid kind of ideas, which didn't work for me. Um, I also grew up with horrible digestive issues um, from the time I had IBS from the time I was like seven or eight um, all through school all through my adulthood, uh, in my early 20s. And of course, everything I was doing in wrestling definitely was not helping. Um, I went into restaurants, which eating that food definitely wasn't helping. Eating on the run, never sitting down, always being stressed out, eating horrible food, having to take like, oh, like twice the prescription amount of ibuprofen every day I worked because my knee pain and was so bad. Um, I had some injuries from, from soccer and wrestling. And so that's, you know, just further messed up my guts. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd tried going dairy free and then, you know, I tried adding more fiber and all the typical things they just tell you when you have IBS um, and nothing worked. I just kind of gave up. And if you would have ever asked me at the time, I was like, yeah, I'm totally healthy. My blood pressure was great. My weight was normal. I was athletic. I worked out. And so, you know, but if you looked at me from the outside, he's like, wow, that's a that's a really healthy guy. But I couldn't go two or three days without some sort of digestive issue. I'd pretty much alternating IBS, which anyone who's ever had that, really not fun. And I had, I mean, for almost 20 years, I dealt with that. It was just a normal part of my life at that point. And even it was almost something to not think about. Um, but it really restricted a lot of what I could do. I love being outdoors. I love fishing. I love hiking and kayaking. And I really felt scared to go do those things because, I mean, you get out, you don't like to be away from a bathroom when you deal with IBS. It's just like you never know when it could hit you. And so it was, it really started to become restricting as to what I could do. And one day, this was in spring of 2015, I was over at my dad's for dinner. My twin, I have twin sons who were just a few months old and we were over there for dinner and he had started reading a lot of new books on health. He had actually made his own goal because he was dealing with his own stuff um, to read the, the 50 newest books on health and wellness. And so he started reading them. And a lot of these, especially the newer ones around this time in 2015 were the paleo books, the grain-free books. A lot of these things really starting to challenge. That was kind of the the rise of those books. Now there's hundreds of them; they're everywhere. But that was kind of really the rise of them. It was around that time period, and his mind was blown. And he was like, "Holy cow!" And he started implementing it. And we were—he was just having the conversation with me about you know what he had been learning. And I was like, "Okay, this just makes sense. Like eating as we did for most of human existence just makes sense. Eating food that just comes from the land." That's just not processed. Like that just makes sense to me. That's how we lived. And so I was like, I'll try this. Just, and it, I didn't think it was going to fix anything. I just thought it was, you know, a healthy way to eat. And after about four or five weeks, I was like, wow, I haven't had a digestive issue in a long time. And I, I mean, there is no point in my life prior to that, that I went a week without something to, so to go like a month without any, you know, severe issue was mind blowing to me. And I was like, there's something to this. I started needing less coffee. I was working two jobs. I was working basically from six in the morning until 10 at night, working two jobs in restaurants, which is incredibly exhausting coffee all morning and afternoon, and then soda in the evening. <laughs> and I just wasn't, I, I didn't need that. I had stopped the soda because of what I was reading and wasn't drinking it anymore. And, you know, and then 
realized I didn't need any other caffeine in the morning, in the afternoon. And I just started needing less and less. I wasn't having to take my ibuprofen. Everything was improving. And so from that, with that, I just dug all in. I went through Mark Sisson from Primal Kitchen and Primal Nutrition, Primal Blueprint, his Primal Health Coach certification. Um, at the time I went through that. And then after that, I went through the Nutritional Therapy Association. Um, and I've just been doing education ever since both formal as far as like doing actual courses and blood chemistry and stool testing and all sorts of functional testing, as well as just hours and hours and hours of self-study, spending just hours a week, every week in research and actually reading the, the actual research, skipping the blogs and the books and the podcasts and going to the research itself. Um, I wanted to see that data. I didn't want to see someone's review and their interpretation of it. I wanted to see it for myself. And that's kind of, that puts us here today, more or less. <laughs> and that is why you are such an amazing contributor to our group, because you bring all of that knowledge that you are constantly researching. And we're so grateful and appreciative of that. Um, yeah, I always find that those of us, and you know, especially that of come through NTA and, you know, found the holistic health space have, you know, come because we were fixing our own issues. And I was very much the same and in, in many ways with digestion issues and fertility, a genetic skin condition. So um, it is amazing, you know, that you could see that much change just by changing your food. Yeah. And then of course we, we peel away, you know, the deeper layers of what's going on there when we, when we dig in. Well, Let's dig into iron. Let's, I was, I had a trouble, like, how am I, how do I want to go about this? Cause there's just, it's, it's like, you can just open the can of worms and let all the worms fall out at one time. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's just how this is going to be. Like one thing will lead to another and that's cool. Um, but what do you see happening? I mean, I see a lot of, well, I say that people come to me, it's like, I have low iron, you know? Um, but what do you see happening with clients and iron in your practice or what do you hear a lot? Yeah, so it's interesting. I have definitely seen a good mix of both iron overload and low iron. Um, so often I get clients who are told they have low iron or that they're not iron deficient, and they are. Um, so a big thing that happens is is allopathic medicine and right, you know, kind of traditional doctors, their go-to marker to check iron is ferritin. And so if the ferritin is normal, they won't dig any deeper. There's like, oh, we're just going to run this. And that's it, which is kind of crazy because it's not like the iron markers are expensive by any means. They're super cheap. So it's not a difficult thing to, to order. But their understanding is that ferritin is storage iron. And so if the storage iron is good, then we have sufficient iron. Because why would we, you know, you're not going to make your, you're not going to have your savings account really full and have nothing in the checking account that you can actually spend and access, right? So it's like, as your checking account gets lower, we're typically going to pull from our savings account. So that's kind of the, the idea that they have. But there's, ferritin really isn't a great iron marker, and we can get into that more. Um, but there are studies looking at people who are iron deficient and have normal ferritin values, and actually a good chunk of them did. And that gets into the physiology of understanding ferritin, how it reacts, why it's showing up on a lab test, and we can dig into that more. But that's actually something that I see incredibly common, and sadly, even in the functional space. I've seen quote-unquote holistic, natural, you know, integrative functional doctors who are only running ferritin as their baseline iron marker and not running the other labs. And it's incredible how many have come to me with a normal ferritin, even from functional doctors, and still have issues with iron regulation. That's probably what I see the most. Um, is, Interesting. Is, so, well, does somebody come to you or in there if they're not concerned about iron necessarily, um, but they might be coming to you with certain symptoms? Um is that, I mean, and then you're like, oh, well, let's run, let's run a test. Let's do a more thorough, comprehensive um, blood panel. And then you're seeing that there. But I, I wonder if you could share maybe what some symptoms of um, a, a dysfunctional iron um, level would, would be. Yeah. So, you know, things like fatigue, you know, anything that we think of anemia, oftentimes for sure can be, you know, iron related. It's not always iron. And that's, um, you know, we can get into that. But things like fatigue, weakness, pale skin, um, issues with like breathing or heartbeat, 
oftentimes like a shortness of breath, really feeling like you're out of breath, like you can't really get a full breath because iron is so involved with hemoglobin, which is where we base anemia. And that the whole role of that is to deliver oxygen throughout the body. So if we don't have enough iron, we may not be able to make enough hemoglobin, and then we can't deliver oxygen very well. So it's very common to have shortness of breath or a fast heartbeat as your body's trying to push the little bit of red blood cells and hemoglobin it does around quicker because they're not as efficient. Um, you can get dizzy and lightheaded. Uh, be, again, be just lack of oxygen everywhere. Um, issues with hand, with like extremities, your hands and feet being cold, um, brittle nails, uh, a lot of those different things can come back to iron. Interesting. I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, just the, the fatigue alone, um, maybe somebody would, first thought would not be iron, but um, interesting with all of that. So, okay. Well, so if somebody... Um, so if you're running a panel, let's go ahead and dive into the markers and, and what we need to look at and beyond ferritin, maybe you can explain more about the ferritin um, and then what we need, what other complementary markers we really need to look at to get an accurate picture. Yeah. So, you know, you said some, you know, someone who's not concerned about iron, you know, if they come to me, you know, regardless of something, here's is the, the, what we're looking at for iron, it literally costs like 15, the, the most primary being the, the, like what you would get is iron, the total iron binding capacity. We can kind of explain what these are, uh, which is called the TIBC, the UIBC, which is the unsaturated iron binding capacity, and then the iron saturation. And those four markers together are only like $15. It's a really cheap. So it's just an eye and there's so much information in there, not just about iron, but about other things that it's just something I run on everyone. It's cheap okay. and there's a ton of information. So a lot of times we have no, we, we had no idea that iron regulation and homeostasis was anything to be concerned about. And then it shows up as a problem, which is why I order it so much. Um, so it's just something that I always get. It's cheap. It's informative. And it ends up peeling back those layers, which is why it's so frustrating that so many aren't running it, even in the functional space. We'll sometimes skip that. Um, markers I think we absolutely need would be the CBC. This is the complete blood count. This looks at your anemia markers as well as immune markers. Um, so your white blood cells and, and the breakdown of those. Um, with iron is heavily involved with anemia to the point that generally if you're anemic and you're going to a normal doctor they're like oh it's iron just take iron and level hall there's a lot of there's about nine nutrients that are involved directly with anemia um, and we have to understand what the actual cause of that is there's three primary causes kind of main categories that we would break that down to but we have to run that cbc um, how well are we able to make hemoglobin and red blood cells because we might actually have sometimes i'll see iron overload they actually have high iron and and still can't make hemoglobin or red blood cells very well and that's a whole nother issue and sometimes that's why we have high iron because it's not moving forward through the flow of our body systems into hemoglobin so sometimes we don't need to deal with the iron directly we just need to assist it into hemoglobin production so that our body can utilize it and then those iron levels normalize so that's a really important piece to get um the metabolic panel the comprehensive metabolic panel is always nice to get that looks at like your liver markers your kidney markers electrolytes fasting glucose those are the two really basic panels that whenever you go to the doctor if they do labs they're basically always running the metabolic panel in the cbc which is super helpful because then my clients oftentimes have this information when they come to me which can be really helpful um then we get into some of the deeper markers. Obviously, the iron and TIBC, the UIBC, and iron saturation we talked about. We'll kind of break those down in a minute. Um, I do look at the ferritin because alongside other things, it can be helpful on its own. It's essentially pointless when it comes to iron. Now, other things I want to look at are our zinc levels, our um, copper levels, as well as a marker called ceruloplasmin. Um, and then I'm also going to look at homocysteine and um, 
methylmalonic acid. And we'll kind of, we can break each of these down, but essentially what these markers are doing is, are looking at a lot of different nutrients revolving around iron balance and its absorption, its utilization, as well as hemoglobin and red blood cell production. Um, so you have copper and ceruloplasmin, which are just kind of go hand in hand together. Copper is another mineral that works very, very much alongside iron, um, in which we need copper to make iron available to the body. We can we can eat and break down iron and even absorb it to some extent, but we can't get it bound up in order for it to be utilized. We need to bind that iron to transport it properly into our bone marrow, which is where we make red blood cells and to transport it in various issues. We need copper to do that. Now, copper primarily does that through ceruloplasmin. Ceruloplasmin is a, is a, um, a protein essentially that copper makes work and that ceruloplasmin also needs vitamin A. So vitamin A and copper together is how we get bioavailable iron. The iron won't even show up on a lab if it's not bound. So that serum iron that's being measured is bound iron. And that happens through copper and vitamin A. So what can often happen, and this is the majority probably of people who are being told that they are iron deficient because they have low serum iron, they might, if they're eating an omnivorous diet, so they have meat included in their diet, especially if there's red meat in their diet, they are likely not iron deficient. They are more likely copper and or vitamin A deficient. If you're only looking at iron markers, you can't distinguish between iron deficiency and copper deficiency. They will look the exact same. And that's wow. a big piece that gets missed because if you don't check your copper and ceruloplasmin, you can't, that's the only way to distinguish between iron and copper deficiency is to check the copper markers. Because if you're low and if either your ceruloplasmin is low or your copper is low, you will, you, you can show up with low iron, but you might have abundant amounts of iron. In fact, it could be problematic because that iron is free and unbound. And that becomes really problematic. We, you know, we often think of iron as the easy way to think of it is that it rusts, right? And that rust mm -hmm. is oxidative stress. That's what's happening. It's oxidation. That's what creates the rust. Well, I think at this point, if you've been in the health space at any point in time and tried to be curious about your health, you know about oxidation. Or if you've heard of antioxidants, I mean, we've all heard of that term. That's, that's trying to combat the oxidative stress. Well, free unbound iron wreaks havoc on the body. It can lodge into various organs and tissues and just create loads and loads of oxidative stress. So copper, one of the ways that copper acts as an antioxidant is getting rid of that free iron by binding it up. Now our body can utilize it and mobilize it. And that becomes much safer. So oftentimes, especially people who take iron and their levels don't go up, nothing improves. It's a really big sign. It's not an iron deficiency. In fact, you could be making things worse by continuing to take that iron. Wow. So, so would you be looking, if you're looking at like the high oxidative stress, um, is that one reason that HSCRP would be a helpful marker to look at? Very possibly. Yeah, it could definitely be in play. You know, we could definitely see inflammation coming from that. And it's not uncommon. I had someone who had really high iron overload. Now this was still bound. So he had sufficient copper and vitamin A. He was, he was binding up the iron and even still, even that bound iron, if too much can still be problematic. And it was sending his lipid profile through the roof. When we dealt with the iron overload, all of his markers came down an average of 30 to 40%, all of his lipid profile. Now, again, you go to, if he were to go to a standard doctor, they're like, oh, you just need to take a stat. Stan's not going to fix iron overload. It wouldn't have done anything. Right. It would have lowered it a little bit. But, you know, the changes that we made oh in, in five months, we dropped, you know, just about everything by some markers by over 50%. I want everybody to hear that. Just by addressing <laughs> I mean his iron. You know, you, I mean, it is, 
you have, you know, maybe some high cholesterol numbers or, you know, that's kind of relative and, you know, what is considered a high cholesterol, but, <laughs> and yeah, the doctor, it's just immediately, you need a statin and, um, people are so freaked out when they hear that they don't want to be on it, but they feel like they need to be. But in this, I feel like this iron piece is just one of many things that could be, um, causing, you know, maybe the cholesterol numbers yes. to um, be high, but this is a big one. And so you, okay. So we need, we need sufficient vitamin A and copper, um, to be able to utilize the iron. And so when you, so you, you said, how would you see that on a test? I mean, how are you testing for that or which markers are you, can you use for that? Yeah. So what happens is when I see someone who has low iron, showing up on a lab but i know that they're eating red meat i know that they're eating they're eating meat in general they're, they're an omnivorous diet i'm automatically already thinking okay we probably don't actually have low iron intake what else can be causing this do we have poor digestion do we have issues with malabsorption right do we have parasites and bacteria that are actually eating the iron before it even has a chance to get into our body that can also cause issues. So bacteria, iron is life-giving. As dangerous as it is when it's an excess, it's also life-giving. We cannot live without iron. In fact, all living things require iron. It is life-giving because it's it, part of it is distributing oxygen. And so it's incredibly important. So, and that includes many parasites and bacteria will just scavenge and just eat up all of the iron. As, and so, and that's in our intestines. So that could be a whole nother, that's like a whole nother reason. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's tons of it. And this is again, and again, giving the iron would make that worse because all you're doing is fueling the the parasites the and or bacteria. And so you could mm. be making things worse. And again, if, if you're taking something and it's not moving anything, stop taking it. Like the, And so, sadly, I mean, doctors will give, you know, mega doses of iron. And it doesn't do anything. And they just are like, oh, take two. It's like, no, you're, make, you're making things worse. Let's look at why it wasn't working, not just hit that, you know, get a bigger hammer. That's not, that's not the solution here. And so, you know, we could have that. Is there, is, if this is a menstruating woman, is her cycle really heavy? Does she have really heavy periods? Is she just losing a lot? That can be something going on. That, the, with, in women who have a cycle, that's going to be the most common cause. Oftentimes, it's just we're just losing too much. So heavy periods. Again, can we give the nutrients to help support in the meantime? Yes. But the long-term solution is to fix the heavy flow. That's what we need to address. We can give those nutrients in the meantime to help support. So of course, we want her to feel better. But we, that, that shouldn't be the long-term solution because there shouldn't be this heavy flow. And so we need to fix that. So we have to start under, understanding why the iron is low or is it the copper and vitamin a if i've got let's say a man so no no menstruation um who hasn't had a recent like traumatic injury that would have resulted in blood loss there's no reason why we would have had blood loss um and their digestion looks you know pretty okay you know nothing that would scream that they're not absorbing it then the first thing i'm thinking is that copper and vitamin a you can do two things you can decide to run those markers. You can run you can run a serum vitamin A. So you could totally check the actual vitamin A level. You can check the copper level and you can check the ceruloplasmin. I typically will just check the copper and ceruloplasmin. I don't even typically run the vitamin A level, though you could, and it's not that expensive. But if the copper level is good and the ceruloplasmin is low, that's most likely vitamin A. Now, if the copper is low, and the ceruloplasmin is low, then it could be copper and vitamin A. The other solution, so you could you could test and check those and see for sure. The other thing you can do are liver capsules. Liver capsules are amazing, or actually eating liver would be the ideal solution. Not everyone wants to do that. It's usually easier to get people to take liver capsules. Is amazing for anemia because it contains every nutrient required to make red blood cells and hemoglobin and make bioavailable iron more than any other food. Now, it doesn't necessarily have the highest amount of each nutrient, but all of them in one place, it's the best source. And those nutrients are vitamin A, copper, iron, vitamin B6, 
B9, and B12. So all of those are required to either make iron bioavailable or make healthy red blood cells and hemoglobin. And all of those are abundant in, in uh, liver capsules, especially the vitamin A and copper. You get tons of that. So even if you're not anemic, but you're iron deficient, it's gonna have a good amount of iron and a tremendous amount of vitamin A and copper to really make those that bring in those nutrients so that we can make that iron bioavailable. And so often- And they're working synergi synergistically together. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Which it's a whole food so form. We're going to absorb it mm -hmm. the best. It's got all of these nutrients in tandem. And so it's it's amazing how I've had people who literally are like, I've been taking iron and it's not going anywhere. And we give them liver capsules for a month or two. And it's like, boop, and they're up. I'm like, yeah. And, and oftentimes they can actually go to high iron because they were taking all that iron and they were absorbing it. And it's just running rampant in their body, causing all sorts of symptoms. And then when we fix the vitamin A and copper levels, it starts pulling that iron out of the stored tissues and organs. So it reduces their negative symptoms. It reduces the symptoms associated with iron deficiency. And then all of a sudden their iron levels go high and they freak out. I'm like, it's not because there's a bunch of iron in the liver capsules, because really there's not that much, even a serving of, of liver is only like 30% of your iron, still really rich, but not by the time you get to the capsules, that's not what made your iron go super high. It wasn't the iron in there. It was the vitamin A and copper pulling all of that iron out of your tissues, which is a good thing because now we can get rid of it. Now we can donate blood and get rid of that iron. Um, and I recently, I feel like I saw that you say, um, even tweaking that a little bit and having liver with spleen in it would be even a better choice. Did I, am I remembering this correctly? Yeah. So if you're truly iron deficient, like you are true, like not only do you have issues with iron and cop with like copper and vitamin A, but maybe you're also iron deficient or someone, for example, who has really heavy menstrual cycles, or um, maybe you just, you're, you're a mother and you just gave birth, especially through C-section and you lost a lot of blood you're definitely going to be iron deficient. Anemia is super common post-pregnancy, especially after C-sections is a huge cause of the fatigue. You just lost a lot of blood. Spleen is incredibly rich in iron. Um, it doesn't have as much of all the other cofactors like liver does, but it's way more iron. So sometimes the, and you can get both of those in desiccated freeze-dried capsules. And so you, they're really easy to take. You don't have to try and source them um, and try and get them into your diet and choke it all down. You can just take those capsules and that can really help. The other food that's really high in iron that a lot of people forget about is clams. Clams are super high in iron hmm. and a little huh. bit easier Let's... to get down for some people. <laughs> yeah. Then spleen. Yeah. But they do make the, they do make like the multi-organ um, supplements and yeah. so for sure. I am always, you know, praising, praising the liver pills here to everybody. So I'm glad you said that. Okay. Well, since we're kind of talking about foods, um, I told you all the worms are going to come out in all the different ways. So we'll, so let's just kind of circle to food since we're here. What are the, um, what are some other rich foods? I mean, we've talked about, you know, the liver, the spleen, the clams, um, red meat in general. Um, talk about the difference between animal sourced foods and plant sourced foods when it comes to iron? Oh, yeah. So like, and this is why it's so common for vegans to have issues with iron because one, the iron in plants is what's called non-heme iron. And so this needs to be converted. It has all sorts of issues. And, and it's funny because it's, it, that form is technically eat like in one stage more absorbed in the digestion, but then it actually doesn't because it has to be converted and it get, and then that becomes even less absorbed. And so it's like this whole issue, it's kind of really weird. Um, but we don't absorb iron from plants as much because of the form that it's in. It also then requires vitamin C. And if you're cooking those foods, when you cook plants, you lose a lot of the vitamin C through the heat. And so that makes it even less available. And then many plants that contain iron contain anti-nutrients like phytic acid that bind up that iron. So you're absorbing even less. It's already low bioavailability. And then you're binding up a lot of it. 
And so plants just are a terrible source of iron. Even like you said, even spinach, right? It's just not that great of a source. And the amount oftentimes that you actually need to try and consume to get your iron from that is just ridiculous. Um, so I just, I don't even, you know, attempt to be like, just don't even think of iron and plants at all. If you want iron, eat meat. It's the easiest right. way. I mean, um, I, I try to always remind people that, you know, plants have their strength and animal, you know, the animal, the plant kingdom has its strength. The animal kingdom has its strength. And this is one place that the animal kingdom, animal sources of food shine is with the iron. So don't be looking to plants for your iron people. Yeah, you know, I, I know. see those memes, you know, on, Ugh. and it's like, can't you, you know, it's like all your the spinach, and you can get your all your iron from yeah. spinach, and I'm like, no, and so it's so irritating. Yeah, like, no, you know they do that, and the food, you know, a lot of cereals and grains are fortified with iron. Again, those grains have anti nutrients that are binding up that iron and not even making it very absorbable. Um, or if you're then pouring cereal or pouring, you know, you're having cereal, you pour milk on it, the calcium can impact it. Um, and so again, it's just like, you're not even getting that. Basically any meat is going to be far better. Um, some of the best sources, beef and chicken liver, right? So liver in general is a really great source. Um, mussels, oysters, and clams are all great sources of iron, um, which are also happen to be some of my favorite foods to get. Anyways, organs, mussels, oysters, clams. Mussels, oysters, and clams are called bivalves. It's just a type of shellfish, essentially. But those specifically are the most nutrient-dense that we eat from the ocean, more than anything else, more than salmon, more than, you know, definitely, I, I call it like crab and shrimp and lobster. They taste great, but they're basically like the chicken breast of the sea. Like they don't offer a whole lot of anything um, as far as like nutrition. They're low in omega. They're not, you know, super high in omega threes. They're not great for like B vitamins or minerals for the most part. Whereas mussels, oysters, and clams have have a, 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 not nearly as much DHA as something like salmon, um, but they have an abundant amount of minerals and B vitamins. And I think part of that is because we're essentially eating the whole animal. When you really think about it, we're eating the whole thing. Other than the that's shell, true. you're not eating the shell, but you're eating the whole thing. And I think that's why we get, they're so nutrient dense and they really oftentimes get forgotten, but especially in minerals, they seem to be a really great source of minerals. Um, so those are great. Um, beef is going to be any, any, any cut of beef at that point is going to be best. Beef is definitely the best for iron. Uh, something to think about is that bison or buffalo is actually, is a red meat that isn't a great source of iron. Um, really? Yeah. So it's, and I learned this through um, actually a classmate of mine in the NTA who had hemochromatosis, which is a genetic issue in which you're, you're, you're predisposed to iron overload because your body doesn't get rid of iron very well. And so it's very easy for those iron levels to get high. And she obviously still wanted to eat red meat because overall it's still great and nutrient dense. And she found that bison was actually a, a great way to get red meat in without getting very much iron, especially in comparison to beef. Um, so if you're dealing with iron overload, that can be something you look at. Um, sardines can also be a pretty good source of iron. And then basically after that comes all of the other meats, chicken and turkey and poultry in general and ham and things like that. Okay. That's, that is good to know. I didn't know that about the bison. That's, um, that is interesting. Um, okay. So, and it just made me think also, um, with the hemochromatosis because, um, my husband has that. And, um, and so one thing that's helpful is for him to give blood, mm -hmm. um, bloodletting. <laughs> I think it's a kind of old school bloodletting, like, think of like medieval times, um, that can be helpful. Um, but also it, do you find that, um, it really can help either way, for using a cast iron skillet, like if you're low to use a cast iron skillet, if you're high to avoid using a cast iron skillet too much. So, and I know really this is, this is, this might be a taboo thing in the, in the NTA association, right? It is, um, I'm not a huge fan of cast iron. Um, oh, you're not. Okay. Because so many people do not need more iron and iron overload is toxic to the body. And it's so easy and we're getting, and again, it's not necessarily the most, the, the, the best source of iron. It's so easy to get iron from food 
that it's not something we need to seek out. I highly don't suggest supplementing prenatals with iron. Um, the 90% of people, I don't suggest taking iron supplements. Um, if we have anemia, then we're looking at spleen and liver. Um, to in, in, Even if it's in capsules to fix that or getting clams and things like that in your diet, any of the shellfish. Um, very seldom am I being like, and if I am supplementing iron, then it's a very specific form, something um, like Ferrochel, which is a, um, a patented form of iron chelate. That's a really good uh, way to get it in. Um, I'm just not, I really like my cast iron really rarely comes out anymore. Um, about the only time I, I will bring it out is if I want like just a really nicely seared steak. Um, is about the only time I'm bringing it out. Otherwise, I'm using um, like the green pans or the stone pans uh, or um, enamel. So like you use cast iron with the enamel coating. So like a La Crusade is great if you still want that cast iron kind of um, even temperature um, or stainless steel. I use a ton of stainless steel. Those are so hard to clean. <laughs> if you so, and that's most people don't use them, right? You gotta get, you gotta let them get nice and hot before. And so here we can go into a little science lesson on metal. I spent fourteen years working in restaurants before I got into culinary. And the, the trick to stainless steel is, I can, I can fry an egg in stainless steel. It's, it is a great metal if you know how to use it properly. Most people don't let it get sufficiently hot. And the same thing can be with cast iron. If you put something in cast iron cold, oftentimes it still sticks. And the problem is because they're porous. Metals are porous. And so they have what we can't necessarily see. We don't see a shift with our eyes. But at a very small level is that they're porous. And so what happens is, is if you were to put something like a protein into that pan before it heats sufficiently, that protein, especially eggs, because they're like it's a liquid protein. They can really get into the nooks and crannies, even tiny little ones is it gets in there and then that heat expands, that the pan expands as it heats up because that's how science works is something heats up, it expands. And so that then closes those little tiny pores and it basically grabs on to whatever you put in there, the meat or the eggs or whatever. So if you actually allow that surface, to, that metal to heat up first, it essentially makes a nice flat surface and you don't have those pores anymore. And then, of course, use plenty of fat and things like that. Don't try and, you know, cook it in barely any with barely any oil in there. But you could fry an egg in or scramble eggs in a stainless steel pan if you allow it to actually come up to temperature. And it doesn't need to be super hot. I basically cook. I do most things at like medium heat, but really let it sit there for about five minutes or so and heat up. Do you cook your eggs in butter or what do you like to cook them in? Always butter. Always butter, of course, it's the best. Butter is the best. Um, okay, that's a that's a really good tip. Oh, people are always asking about pans and such. And um, okay, well maybe I'll give stainless another try. I just I've scrubbed too many egg pans. <laughs> now I, I love and I love the the new um, the the non toxic stone pans. I don't know if you've seen those, um, but those I love. That's typically what I'll do my eggs in, and I do a lot of things in there. Um, but I really like those and those are fantastic. It's, it's just as nonstick as Teflon. It really is. And you can slide some eggs around in there. Um, yeah, those like not, the green pans, not, is that what you mean? Yeah, the green pans are, is one brand, um, but they've got ones that actually look more of like a, like a stone, almost marble kind of pattern to it. Um, mm. But all very similar. Those are all, those are all good options. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. Um, okay. Let's circle back to, the some of these markers that we said that you said we would break down um for us let's start with ferritin. There. that's my fun one okay and i think that, okay. that's probably the most ferritin is fun <laughs> because it's what it's what is so often used for iron status so as i said is ferritin is looked at as the the storage form of iron and so if we have sufficient storage then we should have sufficient in our normal amounts of iron the problem is, and this is mind blowing to me. And the first time someone said this to me, it was like, like my mind just exploded. I was like, holy cow, how have we never, why is this not being talked about? Why, why don't we think about this? So it is a storage form of iron, meaning that it is how our body, it will take iron and it can hold ferritin, a single molecule of ferritin can hold a ton, 
thousands of iron. So you're gonna hold a lot, something like over 4,000 uh, molecules of iron can be bound on a ferritin protein. So it's a lot. So you stick all that in there, and then that goes inside the cell. So that's intracellular. Intracellular things do not show up on serum markers. Now, when we're looking at blood, you can have serum or plasma, which are both extracellular. They're slightly different, but essentially they're both extracellular. And then we can have what's called the red blood cell value. That's an intracellular. So that's looking inside the red blood cells, inside your blood. So we either have extracellular or intracellular. If you see serum or plasma, that's extracellular, meaning it won't measure anything that's inside a cell. It's only what's outside the cells being measured, basically in the blood itself. And so the problem is we're measuring ferritin as a serum marker. We're, we're measuring the amount of ferritin in the serum, but it's an intracellular storage protein. So how did it get out into the blood? How did it get outside the cell? It doesn't belong there. And in fact, extracellular ferritin, which is what we're measuring, has very little iron on it. There's almost none. It can hold an abundant amount inside the cell, but what we're measuring outside the cell has very, very little iron. And this is where once we, there's actually a process, it's a process called ferroptosis. Um, so this is essentially iron-derived cell death. Um, and this, they actually, this was only described back in like 2010 was the first time it was like written in papers. So, and in, and that might seem 11 years ago, 12 years ago, might seem like a really long time, but in research, it's really a very short time. There's really not that much. This is still a, a pretty new understanding uh, of this process. Um, but this is how someone could be iron deficient and have a normal ferritin. So what happens is, is if our body is under inflammation or infection, some kind of stressor, it will push that iron, the iron in the blood into the, into the cell, and it will do so through ferritin. Now what happens is we could have normal amounts of iron or even deficient amounts of iron in the blood and have iron overload in the cell mm. because we pushed it all in there. We pushed too much in there. And now that causes too, that causes cell death through ferroptosis. And that ferritin now spills back into the blood. Now, the big question is, where is the iron going? Because it held all that iron. And then now the serum ferritin has very little. One of the concerns is that it is, um, it's, it's becoming un, like it, it frees itself from the ferritin and now it's unbound. And in some ways this makes sense because the ferritin itself is pretty benign, meaning it doesn't really do any harm. But high serum ferritin is linked with all sorts of chronic diseases and all cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes. High serum ferritin does not lead to good results. But it's like, why? Because the ferritin itself is, it's not the problem, but it's, it's what's causing that and what's happening from that, that could be a problem. And so someone who could be iron deficient could also have infections or inflammation totally, right? Like those things are not apart from each other. And that then drives up the serum ferritin into what, instead of being low, actually drives it up into a normal value. And there was some, it was something like they, the, the, uh, the optimal range, let's say, for women, for example, is 50 to 150 for ferritin. Now, the lab range is something like down to 15, but they were looking at people who had levels between 50 and 150, uh, and they found, for ferritin, and they found that about 50% of the people in the study who had a ferritin level under 100, between 50 and 100, so somewhere between 50 and 100, about half of them were actually iron deficient. And it's not because we need the ferritin level to be higher, it's because that ferritin just really doesn't, it, it, it only works if, like, it can work as an iron marker if you're totally healthy and there's nothing wrong with you. There's so many things that can cause ferritin to increase, not only to push iron into, this, into the cells, but to then have that spill back out into the blood, that it just by itself is completely unreliable. Now, the other thing that can happen, so that's ferritin, and that's why it's not a good marker by itself. It can be useful alongside other things, along the other markers by itself, really just not a solid marker for anything. And we can't tell if it's high because of inflammation. We can't tell if it's high because of iron. We can't tell. The only thing is if it's really low, like below 15, 
then it's pro there's probably a lack of, of iron. Even your iron levels might be okay, but you still might be somewhat, you're trending towards iron deficiency. If your ferritin is really like bottomed out, but your iron levels are okay, you're trending towards iron deficiency. Because again, if you, again, we can go back to the bank accounts. If your checking account looks okay, you're going to try and keep some in your savings account, right? Like we want to be putting some away into savings, whether that's investments or just a savings account. We would try and put some of that away. And the body works the same way. So that's that one. The best markers to, to look at iron would be the TIBC. So this is the total iron binding capacity. We could also use transferrin because transferrin is, the, is an actual binding protein. There are multiple binding proteins. And so the TIBC is looking at the total of them. Whereas transferrin is a singular iron binding protein, but it makes up like 80 to 85% of them. So it's, they're basically kind of surrogate markers. Um, outside of the US, I think often you don't, they don't always have the TIBC, so you have to run the transferrin. Here in the US, we typically will look at the TIBC, but you can totally run the transferrin. Um, and then the iron saturation. The serum iron and the ferritin, the two most commonly looked at markers for iron, are the worst markers to use for iron. The TIBC and the iron saturation give us way more information. So we can talk about those. The iron saturation percent, this is gonna be listed as a percent, basically tells us how saturated our, our body is with iron, how saturated are these binding proteins. That's giving, that's telling us how much iron is our body actually able to utilize. That's a really good thing to know, is how, how much can our body actually utilize. Then the TIBC is telling us how badly our body wants it. Because that's it. The, the more deficient we are, the more binding proteins it should make to try and grab any iron available. As we get more and more iron, it will make less and less binding proteins because it doesn't want to pull that out of the digestive system. It wants to kind of leave that there and not pull that in. So it doesn't want that. So those markers become the best. Now they should move kind of in a seesaw. The higher the iron saturation, the lower the TIBC. The lower the saturation, the higher the TIBC. Now ideally we'd want those kind of in the middle of both of their ranges. We kind of want those. But what can happen in the body's super smart, right? And I always say, I'm like, you know, this is, a, this is a perfect place for this, right? Is that God, God, God knew what he was doing when he made this body. <laughs> like exactly. he, he, he didn't just like put this all together on a whim. Like things right. work on purpose. The body is working even when it doesn't feel like it feels like oh, our body's out to get us. It's really not. It's really trying to survive. And it does an incredible, really when we think about it, the human body is incredibly self-sustainable like it is amazing what we can actually do to this body and still be around <laughs> that is the truth <laughs> and so the, this design was not on accident and that in cases of something like parasite infections or bacteria or loads of inflammation even if you're iron deficient or slightly low in iron your iron saturation is low you might also have a low tibc now, remember, I said that those typically move in a seesaw direction. As one goes lower, the other goes higher. And yet, sometimes we will see both of them low. This is a really good indication that while you're iron deficient, what's more important is to get rid of what's causing your body to have low TIBC. Parasites, bacteria, these different infections or inflammation. Because those feed, the iron is going to feed them. And your body is so smart that it knows it would rather be somewhat iron deficient than to feed these infections or the inflammation. And so both of them will be low. And that's why it's so important to look at that TIBC because sure you're iron deficient, but it's not good. You can give all the iron you want. And it's not going to fix it because there's no binding proteins. And in fact, you're going to be worsening the problem that's there. So you have to resolve that problem. That's why we have to start looking at all these different markers. And then, you know, the copper and ceruloplasm and things like that have help because we can't distinguish iron deficiency from copper deficiency, just looking at iron markers, because um, they're going to look the same. So it really becomes this complex web of multiple nutrients, multiple markers to really understand. It's not, oh, just take an iron pill, which is so often what gets told, or just eat more iron. You know, most nutritionists are just like, oh, well, I eat more iron. It's like, well, no, that's not, that's not the solution here. And that, my friends, is why I had Michael on the podcast today. <laughs> all, all of what he just heard. 
<laughs> and I'm so glad I could not have explained it like that. And I'm so glad I no, didn't even attempt to do that. That is such incredible information, such a, such a good overview and case for, you know, needing to look at these markers, um, you know, all of these markers together and understanding what they mean that that's fantastic. Um, I, let's see, I'm trying to see how we're doing on time here. Um, is there anything about, about iron or anything that we have not covered today that you think because we've covered so much and kind of, wait, I know it's like, I know it's laughing. We've covered question. so much and kind of gone, we've gone all around like everywhere. So I'm like, okay, what, was there something else I was going to ask and I left out? I just, I, I can't remember. My mind's kind of blowing right now. So is, is, did we leave anything major out? I would say that if you've never had your iron checked, it's worth getting checked. Whether it's high, because we don't know if it's higher low. It's such an important thing to really have in the sweet spot of where it's supposed to be. And of course, that can, you know, the ranges are very different than what we see on labs. So that's always important to understand having someone who can interpret those properly. Um, but it's worth getting checked. It's super cheap. Like it's something that we can just check. Your husband, you know, and I will say, in the case since, you know, especially since this is your husband, um, in the case of hemochromatosis, I am, I am in the camp of not avoiding red meat for hemochromatosis because well, that's good because so... he's a, a grass-fed <laughs> he cattle it. rancher. So <laughs> <laughs> we raise we raise grass-fed beef. Of course, so he would be the one with hemochromatosis. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, but that it's so one for you. It's it's very affordable to eat red meat, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it's it's yep. also so nutrient dense. No. Obviously, don't go out and eat liver like three times a week and just, you know, get a bunch. But it's so nutrient dense that we don't want to avoid those meats. It's far better to just donate blood, to donate blood. Now, I will say two other things. You know, I always tell my clients who have iron load to take this as a grain, with a grain of salt and use it as you wish within reason. But there are a couple things that can obviously help inhibit iron absorption which in the case of, and we can use this two different ways. If you're iron deficient, we want to avoid these things. And we have iron overload, we might want to think about using them. Grains would be one, right? So if we're having, like when we have steak at dinner or breakfast or whatever, like if you're having it with breakfast, maybe have some gluten-free toast with it. And it might, it can help block. Now I wouldn't get it sprouted. That would be a case in to not use sprouted grains because we're actually trying to use those, those anti-nutrients to block the iron or having some like typical gluten-free pasta with dinner, again, getting some of those anti-nutrients might actually help reduce the iron absorption. The other two things people enjoy much more. Um, and this is where I really say to take, you know, use it as you wish. I'm not telling you to use these things, but coffee and wine um, will also yes, I will block. use those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, usually, yes. that's usually the response. People are like, well, if you, if I really have to, I think I can include those <laughs> things. Um, green tea is another one. So you could literally have a beverage with every meal that can actually help inhibit iron absorption. Okay, but that's inhibit. And pro yeah. Yeah, so, so that would be for people with iron overload. <laughs> and that was, would be if you're iron deficient, you would want to avoid those things. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Don't have steak with your coffee. And don't maybe have your red wine separately. Yeah, have like wait, have your dinner. And if you're iron deficient, you really want the wine, give it an hour or two after, and then just kind of have that glass as you're winding down, if you, if that's what you want, instead of having it with your dinner. Or have white wine, because it's specifically red wine. Now, and, and I, I realize white wine doesn't go nearly as well with steak. So make it like a good, bold, like, oaky Chardonnay, so at least has a chance to stand up to a steak. Yes, I'm, I'm a Chard girl all the way. <laughs> Um, what about, so in, on the flip side of that, what about, um, vitamin C? Yeah. You know, so, you um, know, it doesn't really have any impact on heme iron. And so it's not like you need to avoid it by any means when you're eating, you know, meat and things like that. Um, and it's not going to help if you, if you're, you know, if you're iron deficient, vitamin C isn't necessarily going to help with your heme iron. So your animal based okay, iron, it's not going to really make a difference okay. and you're getting okay. so little from plants. It's just, it's not worth the conversation. Um, it's just like, just eat the meat. 
just eat the meat. Eat the I liver just thought capsules. the vitamin C <laughs> helped it um, helped you absorb just even heme iron a little bit better, but not necessarily. So we don't have to. It we don't have, have to drink like orange juice with our steak. <laughs> no, no, it might have such a tiny. You know, there could be some impact. And again, that's is like we. You know, we can have depending on you know the quality of the orange juice. You might lose some of that vitamin C from the pasteurization. So you have to right. be mindful of that too. Right. What do you think about um, taking? Um, you know, cause I don't know my family, I, I really use liver as kind of our multivitamin. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Um, but you know, because there's so many of us and it can, it can be expensive, even though, you know, we have all this grass fed liver, I'm still buying liver pills, which is ridiculous. And I need to just, you know, do my own, but I, one day I'm going to do that. But anyway, um, and so we take it, you know, kind of every other day, what are your thoughts about um, you know, long-term use of liver pills or daily use, or should we space it out? Or, you know, is it, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, you know, for most people, it's going to be totally fine, especially because it's so well balanced. What you, when you actually break it down, if you're taking the daily amount, the daily recommended amount, which is for most of them, six capsules, that's 3000 milligrams whatever that breaks down to I, like vital proteins has it in four capsules because they use bigger ones, but it's still 3000 milligrams. So you're getting 3000 milligrams of desiccated liver daily. If you took that full dose every day, I think it comes out to like four ounces of actual liver over a week. So oh, which basically breaks down okay. to like about a hundred percent of your iron or a hundred percent of your vitamin A and copper each day which is great. It's fantastic. Um, but it's not, you're not going to get like overloaded from nutrients from taking liver capsules daily. Okay. Cause I think there's been some, I've heard people be concerned about that and I didn't think there was concern. I mean, we, like I said, we kind of do it every other day. Um, kind of alternate just really because, you know, doing that for so many people in the family can yeah. be a little now what, Yeah. Um, now what I say is to take, if you don't need the liver specifically, like if you're not anemic, which would be the biggest case for actual liver, is that I prefer the organ blends. Because that's all what we of, use. Yeah. Yes. And then you're only getting, depending on, each of them is a little bit different. So it depends on how they formulate. But then you're not getting nearly as much of some of like the vitamin A and copper that is high. And I like those because each organ has its own nutrient that it's really high in. Um, or a couple of nutrients. And so you're going to get more from that. So, and then at that point, you really are getting away from toxicity concerns or anything like that. We have like a, it's like an organ bar, you know, like yeah. <laughs> in our cabinet, like what kind of organs would you like today? I mean, we have a lot of liver, but I have a lot of the multi-organ yep. um, blends too. And I, I really, I like that. Um, okay, good. That's, that's good. Um, awesome. Oh my gosh, this has been amazing. But before you go, I have to ask you, the anchor questions. And the first one is what is your anchor meal, which is kind of like a go-to healthy meal that you eat often um, and you enjoy. That's so easy for me. (laughs) Every week (laughs) without fail um, is Buffalo wings. Buffalo wings are my favorite. Um, It's like I make a sauce with grass-fed butter and Frank's hot sauce. And garlic, loads of. Oh wait, okay, wait. I just saw, I just saw you post like the most ginormous thing of Frank's hot sauce. I think I've ever. Oh yeah, I get it by, I get it by the gallon. I get it by the gallon. Not, you're not kidding. No. (laughs) Hardcore Frank's lover. Wings a lot, but I use it for everything. Um, their slogan is accurate. (laughs) Um, so I use uh, uh, so wings, and then we always do like a big, just raw veggie tray, um, with some sort of dip. Um, either hummus or guac, or I'll make like a ranch um, with really good ingredients. And we'll do like um, carrot sticks and cucumber and broccoli and peppers and things like that. And so we'll, while the rings are cooking, we'll eat the veggies and then and we'll eat a big plate of them. And then I'll have a big plate of wings. And that is how at you, least once a week, sometimes twice. How do you cook your wings? In my smoker. I use, I use my Traeger. Um, at like, I set it to like four thirty-five, and, uh, 10 minutes flip them and then 10 more minutes. All right. That sounds good. Um, okay. And how about the other anchor question, um, an anchor verse. So a favorite Bible verse or one that might just be kind of speaking to you at this time. Yeah, that's easy. It's the one that's on my wrist. Um, so it's first John four eighteen, and it's been there since 2008. It's quite some time. Um, which first John four eighteen is there is no fear in love, but perfect life, 
Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Oh, I love that. And that you have that on your wrist. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. What a beautiful daily reminder. That's awesome. Oh my gosh, Michael, this was incredible. I'm so, I was telling him before we came on, I'm like, I've kind of been, I've had him on my mind for so long about to come on as a guest. And um, this was just Obviously, I picked the right topic to have. <laughs> so, Which is great. Uh, I've, talk, I've been on so many podcasts to talk about thyroid. Um, and so when you were like, I want to talk about iron, I was like, yes. I was like, something new. <laughs> oh, good. Because y'all, he's he's really, he's a thyroid expert too. Um, so I should have you back another time to talk about that. But I just, uh, I had to get this iron thing done, especially after that Oreo story. So I'm glad <laughs> that we took care of it. <laughs> today. Well, tell everybody where they can find you. Um, cause you, you still work, do you still work with clients virtually, right? I mean, I know you're I doing do. a lot of work with practitioners and such, but you're also working with clients. Yeah, I do still one-on-one -on -one, um, work with individual clients. And so you can find the easiest place to find me to find everything for me is on Instagram, uh, which is at functional underscore blood underscore chemistry. And from there, then all my links are in my bio and things like that. So you can find the rest of the stuff from there. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you again so much for coming yeah. on. I appreciate it. I love being here. All right, my, all right, my friends. Well, thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.